Welcome to the LACNETS podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Yen. I'm the LACNETS Director of Programs and Outreach, as well as a caregiver and advocate for my husband who is living with NET. In each podcast episode, we talk to a NET expert who answers your top 10 questions. This podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Please discuss your questions and concerns with your physician. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the LACNETS podcast. I'm really excited to introduce our special guest, Dr. Martin Auerbach. Dr. Auerbach is a nuclear medicine specialist who received his medical degree from the University of Vienna, and he oversees the UCLA Theranostics program as the director of nuclear medicine. The program involves the diagnostic dotatate scans, that's very familiar to the NET community, and the peptide receptor radionuclide therapy, also known as Lutathera. He's very active in research and in the UCLA Multidisciplinary Net Tumor Board. And on a personal note, I'm very familiar with Dr. Auerbach because he's been involved in my husband's care. Welcome, Dr. Auerbach. And if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and what first interested you in Net and what you do now. Hi, Lisa. Thank you for inviting me. And it's a great pleasure to talk to your audience. They're all very knowledgeable and always have interesting and good questions to ask. My background is I, you know, I studied medicine in Austria and then did all my postgraduate training here in the U.S., starting with three years of internal medicine in New York and then joining the UCLA nuclear medicine team here in 2002. So I've been practicing nuclear medicine for about almost 20 years now. Um, PRT has been around for a long time, but uh, not in the U.S. So most of the treatments and research was done in Europe. But because our department has uh, lots of connections to European centers and European researchers, we learned about this and invited them to come to our department and learn from them. And then we're able to establish the um, Theranostics clinic and procedures here at UCLA. And we've been doing PRT now for, well, I can't even remember, at least um, five years, I think now. Initially involved in an expanded access protocol and then, of course, once it became available clinically, been seeing a lot of patients. Um, nuclear medicine used to be a primarily diagnostic discipline, but with my background of medicine, I was always interested in treatment. So that was kind of a natural fit for me then when uh, PRT came along to get involved in that and act like a real doctor, not just one looking at pictures. That's funny. And how lovely that is. It's true, right? You're able to combine the two and yeah, just look at pictures, but treat people. It's intellectually interesting, but it's also very satisfying. I enjoy talking to patients, taking care of them and helping them as much as I can. So yeah. um, it's a really good fit for me. How wonderful it is. You're able to come out of the dark room and interact directly with patients. And well, it's, it still all takes place in the basement here at UCLA. So <laughs> Still a dark room and in that dark place, able to provide therapy as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that background and that trivia also. And as we move forward into these 10 questions, I'd love to hear, I guess the first question is who's eligible for PRT? And when considering PRT, is there a minimum or maximum tumor size? So the eligibility for PRT requires that the neuroendocrine tumor is well differentiated Usually PRT is not a first-line treatment, so these patients usually have undergone surgery initially, and then they develop metastatic disease, and then they've received usually somatostatin analogs, and then 
also additional treatments with Everolimus or Capetem. And they've failed either one or two lines of therapy. The disease has progressed. It is well differentiated, then PRT is an option. Size, there is no maximum or minimum tumor size that we would treat or not treat. So size is not really an issue. That's reassuring. And as you know, this is a hot topic. So I know you said well differentiated is, is uh, eligibility for PRT. And what about age or any other factors? So age is not a factor. I would say that what clinicians call performance status, also known as ECOG, does play a role. And you don't want to treat somebody who is already, unfortunately, at the end of their life. It's not a curative treatment, but it has a good track record in keeping the disease in check and prolonging life. But if somebody is at the end of that journey, then PRT should not be given. It won't have any benefit. And it does involve significant effort from the side of the patients and having to come to the clinic. It's not free of side effects, both clinically and also financially. So I think that would be the only real reason for not giving PRT to somebody who is otherwise qualified to get it. Mm, okay. You're saying it shouldn't be end of life care or palliative at the very end Correct. and perhaps maybe use it a little earlier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, the next question would be, how do you decide on doses of radioactive agents in PRT? And do you consider people's weight or does everyone get the same dose? So there's two things in this to answer this question. One is what the FDA approved, which is a fixed dose regimen. So right now, patients get the standard dose, which is 200 milliliters, regardless of weight, body habitus, weight, or extent of disease. There is a reduced dose of 100 milliliters in patients that have significant side effects, and we have to reduce the dose. But other than that, there is no variation for the dose that we give. Now, would we like to try something different and give a dose based on what we call dosimetry, where we can measure what the maximum dose would be that a patient can get without damaging other organs? Yeah, we're very interested in that. Although there is no definitive data from little research that exists, whether that really helps or not. So it would be interesting to find out if one can improve outcome by doing dosimetry. The doses that we do give are probably sufficient and ample. What happens is when you administer the activity to the patient, the treat activity, meaning the treatment dose, most of it, the patients pee out. So very little actually remains in the body that's being taken up by the tumor. So the doses that we currently give as dictated by the FDA approval are probably sufficient and redundant enough to treat the tumor. But the definitive answer, whether uh, doing dosimetry and being able to give higher doses would have additional benefit for the patient, the answer to that is not out yet and would be interesting to have. That's really helpful. And I'm glad that you brought up dosimetry. So I know you said that perhaps people might be able to get higher doses, I know that a common concern that comes up are for people who might have to get lower doses for various reasons. And they're concerned about, well, does it mean that PRT will be less effective if they're getting less? So we don't give lower doses. We give the standard dose. And that is the dose that has been shown to be safe through a wide range of patients with different weight, different extent of disease. And it's, it's, it's safe. So giving a lower dose than that only makes sense, as I said earlier, when patients have significant side effects that require a dose reduction. But other than that, we don't give lower doses. 
Yeah. So when they have to have the dose reduction, say 100 millicurie because of mm -hmm. significant side effects or their labs, what would you say if they're concerned about the effectiveness then? Effectiveness. It's probably effective enough. Again, because we are giving redundant doses where most of it is effectively peed out after the administration. So, but definitive answer, nobody knows. Thanks for that. There's so much work to be done, I'm sure. And it's exciting that we are moving forward, hopefully, in, in, that, in that learning process of it. So the third question is, what are the side effects of PRT and how are they managed? So the most important side effect really is a temporary decrease in blood counts. What happens is that some of the radioactive isotope from the PRT goes to the bone marrow and it affects cells there that produce white blood cells, which are important to prevent infection. It affects cells that produce the red blood cells, which if they become too low, patients develop anemia. And it affects the cells that produce the platelets, which are important to prevent bleeding. Now, it's rare that there would be a severe decrease of blood counts. Usually what happens is that the counts decrease a little bit, and then they recover again before the next treatment. So what we do in between treatments is we check the patient's blood counts to make sure that they're able to get the next cycle. If the blood counts go down significantly to a dangerous level, then patients develop an infection because they don't have enough white blood cells. Infection can be treated with antibiotics. If the red blood cells become too low and the patients are severely anemic, that can be treated with a blood transfusion. And you can also give transfusions for platelets if that is needed. Then if that happens, if patients have a severe decrease, that would then subsequently require a decrease in the PRT dose. Instead of 200 millicuries, they would get 100 millicuries. Yeah, thanks for that. And I know you already touched on how that might affect things already, as I asked that earlier. So kind of going back to, you know, PRT and then juggling other things, including somatosan analogs, do you continue with somatosan analogs? And if so, when should someone receive it? Excellent question. So most patients that we see are on a somatostatin analog, and we continue it during PRT. But the recommendations are there should be four weeks between the injection of the somatostatin analog and PRT. So the way we schedule injections and PRT is that patients get their injection, the somatostatin analog, four weeks later, they'll get their PRT. And then right after the PRT, within a couple of hours, you can get your next somatostatin analog injection. Four weeks later, you get your next somatostatin analog. And then four weeks later, you have your next cycle of PRT, since there are eight weeks between PRT cycles. And that continues until the four cycles of PRT are completed. So yes, you stay on your somatostatin analog, but we make sure to schedule everything. So there's about four weeks between somatostatin analog injection and a cycle of PRT. So it takes some coordinating sometimes with the somatostatin analogs and PRT. Uh, yeah, coordination is key, not only with PRT, generally in medicine, <laughs> but we have good administrative staff and nurses and you know we communicate with doctors and who refer us their patients to make sure that everything works out. And you know, sometimes there'll be only three weeks or there'll be five weeks. It's not an issue. So it doesn't have to be exactly four weeks. Yeah, that's helpful to know. There's some margin there. Yeah. Okay. And the next question is, can people have carcinoid crisis with PRT? And if so, how is it treated? So 
patients that have had carcinoid crisis or that have significant symptoms from the neuroendocrine tumors can theoretically develop a carcinoid crisis. If it happens, it usually happens during the first cycle and at the time of administration or shortly thereafter. So if it should happen, it happens at a time when the patients are still in the clinic and you can treat the carcinoid crisis. The standard treatment, although there is no definitive standard, but usually the best treatment is to give short-acting somatostatin analogs, IV, and that usually reverses the symptoms very quickly. And supportive measures include IV fluids, uh, sometimes H2 blockers. But the mainstay of treating a carcinoid crisis is a somatostatin analog given as a bolus injection and then either additional bolus injections until symptoms resolve or a continuous IV drip. How often does it happen? I think we had one patient very early on when we started with PRT that had to go to the emergency room. But since then, I have not seen any carcinoid crisis. And we do ask patients during the consult whether they've had carcinoid crisis before, how severe their symptoms are from the neuroendocrine tumors. So we are prepared in case there should be a patient that is more likely to develop the carcinoid crisis than, than other patients. Sounds like you're prepared and ready in yeah. case it happens. So, you know, we've talked, I know you talked a little bit about labs and what you're looking for in the dip. When and how often are labs done and which labs might be drawn and what are you looking for? So if a patient has normal labs to begin with or near normal labs, then we'll just check labs two weeks before the next cycle. That's usually the time point when counts have recovered again. And um, we also need a little bit of leeway to order the next dose. Since it's not produced here, it has to be shipped from Italy. So there's a lot of logistics involved. So we don't want to wait too long to have the labs and then have to cancel or um, whatever. So routinely, we check two weeks before the next cycle. In patients that have critical labs or low labs to begin with, we might check labs more frequently. The labs that we check are what we call a CBC, a complete blood count with differential. That gives us, breaks down the individual white blood cells, red blood cells, platelets, and some other parameters. Gives us the numbers. Uh, we also check the kidney function to make sure that there's no damage to the kidneys, which we haven't seen but it's still part of the routine lab. So complete blood count and a complete metabolic panel, as it's called. And I'm just curious, is there a cutoff for like the platelets and other counts that you're looking for within the CBC? There is something called the CTCAE. It's a standardized form of quantifying and qualifying decreases in blood counts. And there's level one, two, three, and four, depending on how severe it is. And I don't know all the numbers from the top of my head, but based on that, we either continue with the treatment or we have to postpone it until the decrease has resolved and counts have come up again, and then we have a reduced dose. So there are, it's not willy-nilly, you know, whatever anybody decides, there are clear parameters that we use. So everybody's on the same page, parameters that have been clinically established. Thanks for that. That's reassuring to hear that this is a standard and there's a clear like formula that everyone's following. Yeah. Yeah. So what about imaging? When do you do imaging and which imaging would you do? First of all, imaging is, is usually not recommended until about three months after the last cycle. At least that's the way it's recommended now. The reason for that is that you can get in about 10% of patients, the tumor can look bigger after treatment before it actually shrinks. And it probably has to do with the inflammation and swelling that occurs uh, when tumor cells are killed. 
That said, if somebody has significant clinical symptoms that require doing a scan to find out what is causing the symptoms, then of course we'll image earlier. What type of scan? There's no consensus as of now, but I usually recommend at least the first scan after the treatment should be a dotate PET CT. And then that can be alternated with regular anatomical imaging, depending on what the baseline was, CT or MRI, what is, whatever is available, can be either or both. In patients that have liver-only metastatic disease, you could argue that you don't need to do the dotate PET CT because uh, you can clearly define these lesions anatomically with MRI or CT. Um, however, if you do dedicated anatomical imaging of the abdomen or pelvis, you might miss something that has developed outside of that area or in the bone, which is difficult to see on anatomical imaging. Um, regardless of what imaging modality you choose, and usually the schedule is three months, then six months, then a one year, everything looks stable or smaller. You should at least include at some time points, include a dotate PET CT to make sure you're not missing something that's developing outside the field of view of anatomical imaging, which is usually limited to the abdomen, pelvis, or chest. Yeah, that's helpful. And that actually leads into the next question. When would you expect to see a response with PRT? I'm also curious if there's like a maximum, like a peak time to see that response. And then what's the statistics about the shrinkage or response that's expected? So PRT, I always explain to my patients, is unfortunately, it's not a cure, but it, it helps in keeping the disease in check. So it prolongs time to what we call progression, and it has also shown to prolong overall survival. In about 25% of patients, and just roughly breaking it down into quarters, we do see shrinkage or things getting smaller. In another 50% of patients, things stay the same. We kind of arrest the disease or stop the disease from getting worse. And then unfortunately, there's also 25% of patients where PRT does not work. We don't have any really reliable tools at this point that tell us, okay, this patient is going to benefit from PRT and this patient is not going to benefit from PRT. There are some things that can hint at what's going to happen or what to expect or what is more likely to happen, but no definitive parameter that will tell us, okay, this patient should not get PRT because they won't respond. So usually by three months or six months, if things are getting smaller, that's when they should start getting smaller. So it takes a couple of months at least before you see the effect. And is there a time at which it would stop shrinking? That's harder to answer because, you know, when the big study, the NETA-1 trial, which was published in New England the Journal of Medicine, it's, it's always over a range of all patients. So for one specific patient to tell them, okay, this is going to work for this and this time, and then it will progress again, that's hard or impossible to predict. Um, again, I have to look at my cheat sheet because I don't know the numbers from the top of my head. But if you look at the NETA-1 trial, the progression-free survival at 20 months was 65, about two-thirds of patients did not progress or had progression-free survival at 20 months. Now, again, I realized that this is not a very helpful number for patients. What do I do with this number? I would say roughly you can expect if it works, then it works for at least a year or two in stabilizing the disease. And that includes the patients where it gets smaller before it starts getting bigger again. But then again, uh, the distribution is so that you have patients where it's much shorter. And then you also have patients where the effect lasts much longer. So, Yeah. And I'm glad that you already kind of addressed that question that everyone would have, which is how do I know which, where I'm going to fall in that curve and uh, which yeah. bucket. 
unfortunately, before giving the PRT, we don't know. Uh, we really have to give it and then see what happens. Yeah. Well, you have now treated many people with PRT. For those who have received four doses of Lutathera, what happens at the time if and when there is progression? Can PRT be repeated? Can people have more than four doses of Lutathera? Yeah, so we can do what is called salvage PRT in patients that had initial good response. And what do we call a good response? Well, we want to see a rest or improvement that lasts for at least 12 months. That's the minimum we want to see before considering giving somebody salvage PRT. Now, looking at the data that's available, the longer or the better a patient responds to the initial PRT, the better their response will be with salvage PRT. And salvage PRT is usually given as two cycles. And uh, the other piece of information is that salvage PRT works, but it doesn't work as well as the first time around. And you said it's two more doses. Is it the same interval and the same dose? Yeah. So it's 200 milliliters, again, given eight weeks apart as two doses. And even that can be repeated. So we've had patients that have received salvage therapy twice. So if the second response is just as good again, even if it's not as good as the first time, but if it is again more than 12 months, then can give it again. Yeah. Yeah. And thanks for that. And as you know, you and I know my husband was one of those. So we've been um, down that road with you and together. Um, yeah, so yeah. thanks for that. And the last question is, I mean, we're talking about repeating PRT or different treatments with PRT. What's the difference between alpha and beta PRT? I know this is a big question, but what is the difference and how would you decide between alpha or beta PRT? So right now only Beta PRT is available. Beta refers to the mode of decay of the radioactive isotope. Lutetium-177, which is the radioactive isotope contained in Lutathera, decays by emitting electrons. That's what's called beta decay. Alpha decay are radioactive isotopes that disintegrate by emitting alpha particles, which is basically a, a helium molecule. So alpha particles have the advantage of being able to transfer much more energy to the targeted tumor cells. And the distance that they travel is much shorter. So the hope is that using alpha emitters, such as actinium-225 or bismuth-213, which are complexed into the dotate that binds to the somatostatin receptors, that that will improve the effect of PRT. There's still only limited data available. Some of it is spectacular, but you always have to be very careful with early data it usually or often is spectacular. And then once applied to a larger population, the spectacularness, is that a word, <laughs> kind of fades away. But just from a physics and biological perspective, in being able to impart a higher energy dose to the tumor cells will cause increased DNA damage and be, more, be better able to kill the tumor cells. The downside, of course, is you know, side effect-wise, are the side effects more severe? Does it affect the bone marrow more? Do you have a higher decrease in blood counts? Does it affect other organs in the body? Preliminary data um, shows that it's safe, but currently it's all still research. There's no clinical application or clinically approved therapeutic at this point. We were chosen as one of the sites for a upcoming trial that uses an alpha emitter. It's still all in preliminary process, but here the indication will be that patients that have failed Traditional PRT, Lutathera, are candidates for the alpha-emitting compound. So that trial will answer important questions, but there's still a lot of work to be done before alpha-emitters 
can or might become clinical reality. Wow, so it looks like there's a lot that we now know, there's a lot of work that has been done, and there's a lot that we don't yet know. So in closing, I'd love to hear any closing thoughts or any words of hope that you have for the NET community. Well, we've come a long way from days when only somatostatin analogs were available. So there's lots of tools. It's not only PRT that is available to, to American tumor patients, shouldn't forget that. There's also treatments that are already established and there's lots of research going on in targeted treatments. There is lots of research going on in combining the different treatments. So PRT with immune therapy or PRT with chemotherapy or the mild chemotherapy that we have for neuroendocrine and tumor patients. A lot of these trials are ongoing and I'm hoping that there will be good results that will make PRT and the other treatments synergistically more effective for neuroendocrine and tumors than the individual treatments that we're applying right now. I think that's the most promising future for neuroendocrine tumors combination of targeted therapies, um, whether it's molecular targeting or molecular radioactive targeting as in theranostics and PRT. But there's lots of work going on and there will be new things coming up and some of it will be very effective in helping patients with neuroendocrine tumors. Thank you for that. Thank you for the hope with new treatments that are on the horizon. And it is really inspiring all the dedication and hard work that you and others like you are doing in this field, because if it weren't for all your hard work and dedication, we wouldn't be where we are today and we wouldn't have the options that we have. So thank you for all your hard work, not just with diagnostics and therapy and the whole diagnostics and also research, right? And networking and keeping abreast and then educating all of us. So thank you on behalf of BlackNets and the whole NET community for joining us today. It's always a pleasure talking to you and patients. It's always very informative and I always learn a lot from the questions that patients bring to me. We're grateful for you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the LACNETS podcast. We want to thank our presenting sponsors, Ipsen Pharmaceutical and Advanced Accelerator Applications. For more information about neuroendocrine cancer, go to www.lacnets.org.